All right, we'll go ahead and get started. We're going to be in Romans 11, but before we jump into the text, um, I want to start on a little bit of a serious note, um, kind of a, a somber way, I guess, to start a, a Sunday morning, um, but we have a, a matter of church discipline to discuss. Um, Logan and, and Dory, they've been feeding their kids snacks that are really high in sugar. Uh, and then sometimes I'll send them over to my house after. They feed their kids these snacks that are really high in sugar. Um, and it's just not healthy for those kids. So I'm looking for a, a motion and a second to discipline. I'll do both. Jeremy, Jeremy's on it. Okay. Well. He can touch me. <laughs> he can't touch me, huh? Bring the guilty party in and we'll give him a fair shot. <laughs> All right, well, maybe aside from the fact that we don't have our clerk here today, what would be the issue with uh, such kind of church discipline? Why would that not be a, a legitimate reason to, to discipline somebody in the church? You should have just had a warning. <laughs> oh, all right. Asking for grace. I see how it is. Pleading leniency. <laughs> All right, Jerry. Well, it also impacts the income of this relatives of mine that you're talking about reducing the purchase of Hershey Oh, okay. <laughs> Got to take all things into consideration. All right. Joe. You can take their snacks away and give them to me. <laughs> All right. Well, I showed up with some jokes. <laughs> so much for starting on a serious somber note. <laughs> All right. Why would that not be a legitimate reason for church discipline? I think. Go ahead. Okay. What's wrong with my opinion, Summer? Not everyone would agree with Okay. All right, so it's an opinion matter. It's not blatant sin. So definitely we want to protect the church from a sinful atmosphere, right? We want to purge the sin from within us. We want to be holy within the church, but we have to legitimately identify what is sinful versus what is opinion. That's a good, good thing to keep in mind. So as I said, we're going to be in Romans 14, but we have to work our way up there and establish a little bit of context. Somebody remind me, what was the, the whole point of what was going on in chapters 1 through 11? What was Paul talking about in those uh, quote-unquote introductory chapters to Romans? Just summarize it for me. Sin, forgiveness, redemption. Good. That's a great summary. Sin, forgiveness, and redemption. It's talking about justification by faith. And then we get to chapter 12, and he kind of pivots a little bit from doctrine to practice, and he gets into some uh, practical application, addressing our sanctification. Um, and I want to just go through and look at, uh, highlight some verses from chapter 12 to 14. Look with me at verse 3 of chapter 12 where Paul says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. So he starts to address this uh, practical um, 
lifestyle of a Christian, how a Christian ought to live, um, especially within the community of the church. Down into verse 9, he says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Uh, 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. So again, just this working out of our salvation, this justification that comes through faith is being worked out within the church. And we see especially an emphasis on love. Verse 16 of chapter 12, be of the same mind towards one another. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And he wraps up that chapter by saying, do not be overcome by evil, but rather overcome evil with good. And then he gets into, as we spent a couple of weeks on our relationship with the government and how we ought to relate to the government and submit to the government and to what extent. Um, and then in verse 8 of chapter 13, he picks up again. And he says, Oh, nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. <laughs> Verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And he wraps up that chapter by saying, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. So again, he has established that we do have uh, liberty in Christ. Christ has come and he has fulfilled the law, but he has left us with a commission to love and obedience. We are not a lawless people. We are left with this law of love, which is established in Christ, so that we as a church can go out, we can love one another. Um, And here in chapter 14, he transitions from the, the general to the specific. He gets specific as to how we ought to love one another in the church. As I said, we we do have liberty in Christ, don't we? Do we have freedom in Christ? All right, what is it that we have liberty from? What have we been liberated from as Christians in Christ? Okay, to... We've been liberated from the law. We don't have to uh, obey the law, right? Christ has obeyed the law. He has fulfilled the law for us. What else have we been liberated from? Yeah, we've been liberated from sin and the punishment of sin, right? And the penalty of sin. We've been yeah, uh, the emotional aspects that come with that. We don't have to fear death. We don't have to live in this uh, place of emotional guilt because we don't have physical guilt. We don't have literal guilt because we are not guilty. We have uh, been justified by the work of Christ on the cross, right? It is finished, and therefore we can have hope in eternity with him. However, we have not been liberated from the, the law of love. We haven't been liberated from the obligation that we have as Christians to love one another and to set one another as as more important than ourselves. And as I said, he's going to get into some specifics here, moving from the general into the specific on how that is to look and what it's to look like. Now, to to fulfill this last verse in verse in chapter 13, verse 14, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and to make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. Uh, that is to, to live a holy life, right? To be holy just as Christ himself is holy. To live a life that is set apart and is different and is distinct. Not only 
of ourselves, but if we're to do this in the context of a church body, we're to spur one another on to love and good works, aren't we? Uh, as Hebrews 10.25 says, we're not to forsake the gathering of ourselves together, as some are in the habit of doing, but instead we are to encourage one another even as the day approaches, all the day long, we are to encourage one another, hold one another up. We are to sharpen one another as iron sharpens iron. We are to be doing life together, walking with one another. Uh, all the one another's of Scripture are to be done together actively. Um, and that's what we see coming into chapter 14. Um, but then... Um, that's when we can get into a, a little bit of trouble if we don't properly distinguish, as Summer pointed out, between uh, what is blatantly sinful and what is uh, opinion. If we seek to be set apart to the Lord in community, division is a, a real possibility. If we don't have the proper mindset, we don't have the proper lenses that we're looking through as we're seeking to do that. If we have different understandings of what it means to live a set-apart life. If I think in order to be set apart, Logan and Dory have to withhold all sweet snacks from their kids and they're not doing that, um, there's an issue there somewhere, right? Whether it's on my part or their part, and Romans 14 is pretty informative on how to address those types of issues. So let's jump in. Let's go ahead and read the passage real quick. Uh, will somebody read for us the first four verses of Romans 14, please? Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. All right, so the first thing that I want to address is this person who is weak in the faith. Verse 1 says, now accept the one who is weak in the faith. So if we're to do that, we have to first ask ourselves and identify who is the one who is weak in the faith. Uh, I think it's important that we recognize right off the bat that this is not an unbeliever. Uh, I think it can be easy to to be misunderstood in that way, um, to think, well, this person doesn't have faith, so they can't be a believer. Well, that's not the case. This person does have faith. They're just weak in their faith. Uh, Douglas Moo says, faith refers not directly to one's belief generally, but to one's convictions about what that faith allows him or her to do. The weak in faith are not necessarily lesser Christians than the strong. They are simply those who do not think their faith allows them to do certain things that the strong feel free to do. So they don't have an understanding of the freedoms of the liberties that they have in Christ that uh, the strong in the faith have. If you glance over to chapter 15, verse 1, it says, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weakness of those without strength and not just please ourselves. So we are talking about a distinction between the weak and the strong, even though the strong aren't uh, mentioned as strong in our passage here. So uh, what is the example that Paul puts forth here of the weak Christian? Why is this individual considered weak or these individuals considered weak? 
questions. All right, I got a couple of people. Yes. Uh, just because they think there's limitations, there's the following. Okay. No, yeah, that's right. They, they're placing these, uh, at this point, self-imposed limitations on them, right? Jerry, were you? Not even limitations of the Mosaic Law. It's going back before that. Like yes. Vegetables only. That's like. Yeah, they're really, adding really their own limitations. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Jerry, did you say something? Say so, yeah, but before the flood, we were permitted to eat meat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. People, I know people today feel like this is totally out of biblical context. <laughs> yeah. Well, we like to um, exaggerate rules so much. You know, it happens at my place of work just all the time in general. Mm -hmm. But if they're not supposed to have any blood and the meat that they eat, maybe they don't know how far that extends, so they just would rather not eat meat. Yeah. yeah, so that is the, the issue, eating your meat, right? What are we allowed to eat? What are we not allowed to eat? Um, these guys say meat's off the table. I say sweets are off the table, right? Um, and these guys have a little bit more precedence than I do for saying such things. As Jeremy mentioned, um, in the Old Testament law, we can read about restrictions on certain types of meat, certain types of food and animals. Uh, let's turn real quickly to Leviticus. Leviticus 11 is where we see these different rules and standards. One of the places. So Leviticus 11, I'm going to read the first... Uh, four verses. The Lord spoke again to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, These are the creatures which you may eat from all the animals that are on the earth, whatever divides a hoof, thus making split hooves, and choose the cud among the animals that you may eat. Nevertheless, you are not to eat of those among those which chew the cud, or among those which divide the hoof. The camel, for though it chews the cud, it does not divide the hoof. It is unclean to you. And he goes on to mention a number of unclean things. If you just kind of glance your eyes down the page, you'll see that word unclean appear a number of times. And then let's pick up in verse 34. It says, everything, moreover, on which part of their carcass may fall becomes unclean. An oven or a stove shall be smashed. They are unclean and shall continue as unclean to you. Nevertheless, a spring or a cistern collecting water shall be clean, though the one who touches their carcass shall be unclean. Uh, I think I read 35 and 36, instead of 34 and 35. But again, we get the picture of uh, just uncleanness and how all this leans, leads to uncleanliness. So let me ask, why is it that this was established for Israel at this particular point in time? What was the whole point of these dietary laws and commands that they had? All right. I heard somebody say to be set apart, and that's... Exactly right. Uh, glance on down. Let's read verse 44 and 45. Will somebody grab that for us? Uh, we're in Leviticus 11. We're getting ready to move to Deuteronomy 14. 44 and 45. Yes, please. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. And you shall not make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth. 
For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. Alright, so again we see right there that the whole point of this was that they would be consecrated, they would be set apart. Um, and just as I quoted from First Peter earlier, um, that they, Israel, would be holy just as the Lord himself is holy. And Peter took that and he applied that to uh, the church in different contexts later on. To be set apart, to be holy was the purpose of these dietary laws and restrictions. It wasn't God's diet plan to make his nation healthy? Uh, there were some uh, legitimate aspects uh, and benefits to health, but no, it was so they would be set apart from their surrounding neighbors who practice all kinds of different things. They were to have something distinctive about them, just like circumcision was to set them apart in that way as well. Uh, Deuteronomy 14, let's turn over there. And when we get there, will somebody read for us the first three verses of that chapter? Deuteronomy 14, 1 through 3. Okay. You are the children of the Lord your God. Do not cut yourselves, this is the right one. Yep. Or shave the front of your heads for the dead. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be his treasure and possession. Do not eat any detestable thing. These are the animals you may eat. The all right. Yeah, and then the whole chapter just goes on to what what is allowed, what is not allowed. Uh, no, it's good. Um, so he starts to list all these detestable things that they are to avoid, and then he gives them things that they are permitted to uh, indulge in. And then in verse twenty one, we see again the the purpose kind of laid out for us. Um, he says, "You shall not eat anything which dies of itself. You may give it to the alien who is in your town." So that's kind of interesting. They themselves can't eat it, but they're permitted to give it to the the alien, to the stranger, somebody passing through. It's fine for them to give it to them, so that they may eat. Or you may sell it to a foreigner, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. They are set apart. They are distinct. Um, that was the whole purpose of these laws. Uh, we saw in the book of Daniel, Daniel submitted himself to these same restrictions. And he, as well, he went even further and he only ate uh, vegetables and water, right? Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they submitted themselves to these laws, they being Israelites, being under this command. Um, we saw that the benefit that came to them from their obedience to this law. Um, it seems that the the weak back in Romans 14, they're subjecting themselves not only to this law, but as we mentioned, even to an exaggerated version of this law going beyond just the, the certain meats that are rejected from the animals that have the split hooves or that chew the cud. And they say, we're going to abstain from all meat altogether. Um, this exaggerated form of these Old Testament regulations, which had some legitimacy for the Israelite people. Yes. How come it made them righteous before, but now it makes them weak in the faith? Um, that's a great question. And <laughs> that's really what we're looking to get at in, oh, in addressing this. No, you're good. Um, anybody else have thoughts on that? Why, why do we today not have to subject ourselves to that law that uh, was established in Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy 14? Yes. We don't because following those laws doesn't make you righteous and it simply doesn't remove sin. Yep. It's not effective. 
Yeah, and to be clear, it was never meant to make anybody righteous or to remove sin. It was meant to get to set them apart, to make them distinct and different from the cultures around them. But it certainly doesn't do that for us today, right? We have a, a sacrifice for us today, a, a perfect sacrifice, um, which is sufficient. It's also important to note that in the weakened faith in Romans 14, they're going back before the Mosaic Law. They can eat only vegetables. That's what they're thinking. And in the different eras that throughout time, God had different instructions for different people. Uh, from up until, like Jerry said, up until the time of Noah, you couldn't eat meat at all. So they're going back to that era. And they're imposing on themselves instructions or laws that God did not give them for the sake of their own conscience not embracing the liberty that is in Christ. And it, it takes faith to embrace freedom. That's the, that's the whole point. Yeah, and we have that freedom, as I said, in Christ. Jim, do you have something? I just think it's interesting, this whole point that Paul's making, he's talking about it. Those who are strong in the faith, becoming, receiving more liberty, receiving more freedom, and the world today looks at it, oh, well, he's joined the church, or he got saved, so now he can't do this, and he can't do that. The world looks at us as being more restricted because of our faith. And Paul looks at it as being liberated because of his faith. Mm -hmm. And I would venture to guess that a part of the reason that the world looks at it and they think of it as being restrictive is because, um, in many respects, Christians in their liberty choose not to exercise their liberty to the fullest extent that we're able to. But um, also, the world has a completely different worldview and perspective as they're course, looking at us. And we choose not to sin. But that's, but the, yeah, they say that as being restricted. But yeah. I, I just think it's kind of interesting that Paul's, Paul's got almost a totally different view. Yeah. Saying that the stronger you are in your faith, the more liberty you have, not, not more restrictions. Mm hmm. The cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, so they don't see that with the same same lens for sure. All right, let's uh, look at uh, Mark seven. Well, we won't look at Mark seven, but in Mark seven fifteen through nineteen, that's where Jesus uh, says that it's not what goes into the body that defiles the body, but what comes out of the body that defiles it. Talking about the heart, the wickedness of the heart, and in doing so, he declared all foods to be clean, didn't he? Um, so, as Jeremy mentioned, there are different uh, rules, different um, things that are established for different people at different points in time. Jesus comes on the scene and he says, no, everything is clean, everything is good, go ahead and eat it. In fact, we see that same thing in Acts chapter 10 with Peter, don't we? When he has this, this vision of this sheet coming down out of heaven, all these animals are in it, and God says, go ahead and take and eat. And Peter says, no, God, those are, those are unclean animals, and I've never put anything unclean in my body. And he gets a pretty harsh rebuke from the Lord. He says, what God has made clean, uh, you're not to call unclean. And we see that in the rest of chapter 10 into chapter 11 that uh, the gospel is for the Gentiles. And again, all these foods have been declared to be clean. Um, so we're not under any kind of restriction, uh, mosaic or, or otherwise, to submit ourselves under any kind of dietary law. And these believers in, in Rome, they weren't either. And yet they were subjecting themselves to these uh, 
really man-made regulations. I am myself inclined to draw a, a direct correlation between uh, the, the strong Christian and the mature Christian and the weak Christian and the immature Christian. Um, I'm not sure how strong of a correlation there is there. I don't know that it's a direct correlation, but I think that there is a, a strong correlation between maturity and a strong Christian. Uh, remember from First John chapter two, John goes and he addresses different Christians in different stages, different walks of their life. He speaks to the children. He has a set of instructions for them. He speaks to the young men. He speaks to the fathers. Then he goes back and does the same thing to the fathers. I tell you, to the young men, to the to the children. And so John recognizes a a difference in a level of maturity within Christians. Again, that we are sanctified at varying rates. We aren't all uh, sanctified in the same time, sanctified at the same rate as other Christians. We have different walks, different degrees of development, different stages of our, our spiritual walk in Christ. Uh, they will vary. Uh, we see the same thing in 1 Corinthians 3 when he's talking to the, the immature believers and he talks to them as infants in Christ. He says, I wish that you were older so that I could feed you meat, that you were more mature in your faith. In uh, Hebrews 6, he's encouraging them to press on to maturity. He's again calling them infants and immature in Christ. And even considering the, the different degrees of our sanctification, different degrees of our development in Christ and our walk in Christ, we also come to Christ with different backgrounds, don't we? We each have a, a different spiritual walk, a different spiritual background, different um, restrictions that have either been imposed upon us or that we have imposed upon ourselves in our, our past and our practice, uh, in our walk with Christianity. Um, we have different consciences that work to different degrees within each one of us. So that's one reason why I'm hesitant about uh, equating maturity with strength or weakness. I don't think there, there's a direct correlation there, but... Um, in the same respect, we, as we grow in Christ, we will become more aware of our freedom that we have in Christ and recognizing that freedom that we have in Christ. However, I think there's a difference between recognizing the freedom we have and exercising the freedom that we have in Christ. Just because we recognize that we have the ability, the liberty to do something, doesn't mean that we're going to exercise that liberty. Besides calling them weak, Paul doesn't doesn't slam people for thinking they can eat only vegetables in the chapter. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. The only problem is when they impose their conscience on someone else. Absolutely. And I, if, if we could get that, then that solves 99% of the problems. Yeah. Yep. And that's what he's really going to get into in verse 3. He's going to hammer on that pretty hard. Uh, not to impose your own preferences or your own opinions onto somebody else. But in these first two verses, in uh, Romans 14, 1 and 2, who is he addressing in this section? Yeah, it's two Christians. And what group of Christians is he addressing? All right. What did you say? The Gentiles in Rome. The Gentiles in Rome. And you said to the mature Christians, right? Or to the strong. Remember, we looked at 
15.1, we saw, okay, well, he's talking to the strong here. Same with 14.1, he's talking to the strong in reference to the weak. So, to you strong Christians, you strong Gentile Christians in Rome, accept uh, the one who is weak in faith. So, he's addressing this to those who are strong. And as Dean pointed out, in Rome, we're dealing with mostly Gentile Christians. That's the the big makeup of the demographic of the Roman church. They're mostly Gentiles with some Jewish Christians that are there as well. And it's likely that the Jewish Christians are the ones who are being referenced as the weak Christians here. Those who are uh, submitting themselves under a law that really isn't there, that they are not uh, subject to. And these Gentile Christians who have no understanding of any Old Testament law, they just come in with their, their ham sandwiches and their, they understand this freedom, this liberty that they have in Christ. They don't have any past uh, baggage or burden that they're bringing with them from any uh, different religious background. They are being referenced here as the strong. And they're the ones that Paul initially puts this onus on to accept the weak in faith. He goes on in verse 1, he says, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. So he already established, you need to accept them, you need to embrace them. And then he says, but really accept them, really embrace them. Don't just accept them for the purpose of passing judgment on them. Don't say, yeah, you can come in here so that we can set you straight, so we can really tell you how it is and, and what it's like to be unified, to be one. Uh, I see this a lot in the political realm, right? People talking like, oh, we, we want to be unified. We want to be of, of one accord. We want to be bipartisan, right? Well, does that mean that you want to work with both people? Or are you saying by that that we're going to establish a law, we're going to establish a rule, and you need to come in and submit to that and listen to that? And Paul is saying, no, you don't invite them in so they can... Uh, submit to what you think is right, you need to really accept them, really embrace them, not for the purpose of passing judgments or opinions upon them, um, but accept them as, as Christians. In, in 1 Corinthians 8, uh, there are a lot of uh, correlations between 1 Corinthians 8 and 9 and, and Romans 14. Um, one big difference is here we're not talking about meat that's been sacrificed to idols. That's the whole issue in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9. But he starts off that section in 1 Corinthians 8 by saying that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And he's not telling these strong Christians who have this sense of their liberty, their freedom in Christ, to inform the weak Christians on the liberty that they have. He's not saying you take this knowledge and you impose that upon them, you impress that upon them. But he's saying you take your love and you show them your love. You impress your love upon them rather than your knowledge, which is kind of interesting because um, we think about weak Christians or immature Christians and they do have a a need to grow, and they do have a real liberty, a li real freedom in Christ, and it is good for them to recognize that and to see that, but Paul's instruction isn't to show them their freedom, to show them and instruct them on their liberty, but it is to love them and to cherish them uh, wherever they're at, even if they don't understand and embrace that, that freedom or that liberty yet. And even to protect their conscience. Yes. Yeah, so it's it's kind of crazy that Paul would go there rather than the route of instruct them and guide them. Not that that's a bad thing to do, but his focus is on loving them and protecting that liberty that they have, their conscience. And at the end of verse 1, he says, um, 
not to not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. And that's a word that Summer E brought up. Bring um, understanding these as simple opinions, not as fact, not as blatant sin. Um, this approach again isn't speaking to to first column issues, to addressing sin or um, gospel matters. That's definitely a, a non-negotiable for Paul. In fact. I want to walk through Galatians. We look at um, how Paul does call people to account in the area of uh, the gospel and these primary issues. So will somebody, I put those uh, references on your page. Will somebody read for us Galatians 1, 6 through 10? We'll see Paul calling somebody to account on a gospel issue. 6 through 10? Yep, Galatians 1. I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting him and calling on the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we are an angel from heaven to preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let it be a curse. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For I am now seeking the approval. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be called a servant of Christ. All right. So Paul is definitely not a man pleaser, right? We might get that perception from Romans 14 if we don't have a bigger understanding of who Paul is. But he here is saying that if you guys don't believe the, the gospel that I preach, the gospel of Christ, then you guys are a curse. You guys are damned. You guys are on your way to hell. He is preaching there is only one gospel. He is drawing hard lines in the sand, making divisions among the Christians and the non-Christians, right? Uh, will somebody grab chapter 2, verses 11 through 16 of Galatians? Yes, please. <clears throat> but when Cephas came to Antioch, I told him to his face because he stood to men. But before certain men came, came from James, he was eating with the, with the Gentiles. But when the king, when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically among him, so that even Barnabas was led astray to their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct and was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said before all them all. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how you force Gentiles to live like Jews? And we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentiles by sin, not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that our person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so that we have. So we also believe in. All right. So here we see again, Peter is drawing hard lines on the sand, even amongst friends. He's calling out Cephas or Peter to his face. Uh, he's making a, a real big deal about this. He's not giving them any, cutting them any slack because they're buddies, right? Um, but he called them out to his face. And why did he do that? He says in verse 14, it was because of the truth of the gospel, which Cephas was um, putting in, in jeopardy. 
this was the same kind of issue having to deal with uh, what are we going to eat, who are we going to associate with. But Peter said, no, this is a gospel issue. It's a gospel matter. And for that reason, he called them out in the presence of all. It was a, a big issue that he was willing to take a stand on. And then uh, lastly, in chapter 3, I'll go ahead and read the first five verses. Paul says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Strong language, right? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is the one thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the spirit from the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain. So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Again, this was firm, strong language that Paul was using towards these Galatians, calling them foolish, saying, who has bewitched you? What you were doing is in vain. Are you really so foolish? Uh, this was definitely a rebuke from Paul. And so... He has the ability, and he does take a, a principled stand on gospel issues, gospel matters, and he will point it out. But again, back in Romans 14, what we're dealing with here isn't blatant sin, like what is dealt with in Galatians. And it's not sin or even opinions that affect our understanding of the gospel, but they are simply opinions. Um, that word for opinions has been translated a number of different ways. It actually comes into our English word as dialogues. What? Oh, no. <laughs> I thought Jeremy had something to say. He's just looking oh, at me really intently. Okay. I like the, the New King James or King James doubtful things. Yes. I think it's the best one. All right. Why is that? Because I think it encapsulates the nature of the issue much better than any other translation. Okay. So doubtful things are definitely something that you would dialogue over, right? That you would have this discussion over, even if it's only within your own mind. Um, do, do I do this or do I do that? Um, some other ways that it's translated are thoughts or reasonings, thinkings, doubts, disputing, speculations, arguments. Um, we see this word 14 times in the New Testament. And this one place in Romans 14 one is the only place that we see it translated as opinions, which isn't a bad translation, but we get that understanding of uh, disputations or things that are doubtful, things that aren't certain, that are debatable. Um, that's what Paul is talking about here. A uh, couple of different places where it's translated differently. Matthew 15, 19 says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, that's our word, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, etc., 1 Corinthians 3.20 says, And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. Luke 24.38 says, And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your heart? And then 1 Timothy 2.8 says, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissensions. So again, we get that kind of thought, that understanding of uh, things that aren't settled, where there's some kind of dispute or uh, debate, where they are doubtful things that aren't uh, absolutely settled. And as we've uh, mentioned before, we do have uh, freedom in Christ. We are liberated from Christ, especially in the area of sin and the penalties of sin, right? Liberated from Christ. 
liberated through Christ from sin. Yeah, sorry, I must have misspoke. <laughs> um, yes, we were liberated from sin through Christ. And I just wanted to read for us from Galatians, later on in Galatians uh, 4, verse 31, where Paul recognizes that. He says, So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. He had set forth this illustration to say that you guys are, are free in Christ. And he picks that up in 5.1. He says, It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not subject again, be subject again to the yoke of slavery. So don't put yourself back under this, this slavery that you have been freed from, that you have been liberated from, having been in Christ. Uh, remain free as children of the free woman. And then going down in Galatians 5, down to verse 13 and 14, he says, For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So though we have this freedom in Christ, Paul is appealing here to the Galatians and equally in, in Romans 14 to the believers that they would not use their freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but rather to serve one another, that they would love one another. That's a whole point of uh, this chapter to use our freedom as an opportunity to serve. Any thoughts or questions before we move on to verse three quickly? All right. Romans 14, three. This is where he's really calling out both groups. Uh, it says, The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. So here he's talking to the strong initially, saying don't regard with contempt or don't despise or, or look down upon um, the one who does not eat. Um, the idea behind this is don't don't ridicule them, don't belittle them, and definitely don't disassociate yourself with them. He doesn't want to uh, spur on any disunity. He wants to quelch any disunity that might be among them just naturally by the differences of opinions uh, so that they don't have people calling uh, a group of church members to discipline somebody else because they're feeding their kids the wrong kind of snacks. He wants them to get along and to love one another. Uh, again, we all grow in Christ at, at various rates. We don't want to impose our expectations upon others. And that's that seems to be what Paul is trying to avoid here. And notice that it, it works both ways. He calls out both the strong and the weak in this verse. He says, what who eats, or the strong, don't be contemptuous with the person who doesn't eat. Don't belittle them or look down upon them. And then he turns the flips a coin, so to speak, and he says that the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. So uh, those who feel like they have these different uh, commands that they want to observe, they aren't to impose those self self-made, self-established, man-made commands or traditions or oughts onto other people. We always have to be careful of imposing um, different oughts onto somebody else, especially if it's not straight from Scripture. Uh, 
you can't point to a verse in scripture and say, this says you can't feed your kids sugary snacks. So Tyler, why don't you explain yourself when you want to call somebody to repentance for that? Um, especially as those who teach, I think we can be really apt to uh, impose different extra biblical commands on people. Um, but it's something that we all need to be wary of and recognize that here in this passage, Paul is using eating as an example, but it's just an example. There are many other, uh, countless other ways which we can uh, choke out somebody else's freedoms that they have in Christ and impose our own thoughts um, that are extra biblical onto them. One very common way that we're going to be addressing here in just a short time is parenting. Um, Thinking that we have it all figured out when it comes to parenting, right? That well, Dean, your kids ought to be homeschooled, and if you don't homeschool your kids, then then you're in sin. Um, that's crossing a line, isn't? That's stepping over a, a boundary. Um, or big one today is vaccinations, right? You need to get vaccinated, or you need not to get vaccinated. Uh, you need to make sure you are spanking your kids or not spanking your kids. Uh, again, endless different ways that we can impose our own understanding or our own thoughts, our own man-made laws onto different people in different situations. Before I was with Brett, I was dating a gal who went to a church that thought that drums were from the devil. And uh, I remember having a lengthy conversation with her pastor about how drums should or should not be something that are allowed to be used in or outside of a church setting, that those are uh, somehow evil and bad. So that was interesting being a drummer. But um, a number of different things that we can take and cross a line with. When I was prepping for this, I read a, a funny story from Jay Vernon McGee, and he talked about his wife and how she came from a church that didn't believe in um, how did he put it? Um, in mixed bathing. And you ask, well, what is, what is mixed bathing? Well, he's talking about swimming together with different genders. Um, whenever they went to the pool, the, the women would go to one pool and the men would go to another pool. And that's how his wife saw things and how things ought to be. And she moved out to California with him. And that's definitely not how things were in California. Uh, however, she came from a, a church where her pastors all smoked cigarettes and tobacco and they didn't have a problem with that. She went out to California and that was a big taboo. You can't smoke. Tobacco is it's from the devil, right? That's devil seed. So just seeing these two different dichotomies, is it okay to, to swim together or is it not okay to swim together? Uh, is it okay to watch the NBA these days? A lot of people say, well, you can't, you are, if you are watching the NBA, you are part of that and you are uh, supporting that. If you watch the NFL, you are supporting that. Um, if you subscribe to Sports Illustrated, is that okay? Can you be a, a Christian and subscribe to Sports Illustrated? Uh, what about the swimsuit edition? Is that... Uh, that's one that I'd, I'd be willing to take a stand on, I think. Uh, I don't think it's okay for anybody to... For or against? <laughs> Thanks for clarifying. Against, I would say. You probably should not be doing that. <laughs> Uh, so it, these it, always, are, it always helps when we give the, the thing we don't like a scary name like mixed baby that's hilarious <laughs> everyone yeah. else calls it swimming no it's mixed baby that's, that's what it really mixed is mixed baby yes wow. yeah <laughs> no, that's not that out guys 
boys and girls to swim at the same time. Wow. Did they call it mixed bathing? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so our group went out to a public pool to go swimming. Where women were? Oh, yeah. Where there were men and women. <laughs> <laughs> All right. If you have questions on mixed bathing, you can talk to Jim after. <laughs> He's, he's got the down low. To me, it was foreign, but that was the rule of the camp. That's great. <laughs> All right, so uh, in, in the Old Testament, they had some really black and white lines drawn for them, especially in the areas that we looked at with food, right? Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy 14. Uh, and today we, we don't have quite those stark black and white lines, and, and sometimes we wish that we would, but uh, we can have a tendency to drift off to, to one side or another uh, side of, I'm gonna erase some kids' beautiful art up here, the side of uh, legalism or licentiousness, right? Uh, imagine we have a, a road here and we have these big ditches on one side. Uh, over here we have legalism. And then over here we'll have uh, licentiousness. To uh, recognize your freedom that you have in Christ. And I think we all have a tendency to drift either to one side or another. We'll put some little sidewalks in here. Beautiful sidewalks. Um, and we need to realize that different Christians have, again, different consciences that allow them the ability to walk down this road toward one side or another. And Paul's advice to the Romans is you need to love them, even if they're walking on the opposite side of the road as you. If they're getting ready to jump into this ditch of legalism, um, you need to love them. Not that we can't hold them back, not that we can't warn them, but we need to be gracious and loving with them. Uh, one more passage from Galatians. Galatians chapter 6. We hit all six chapters in Galatians. Uh, first five verses say, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, that's important, check yourself first, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Again, important to gently restore them. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But if anyone, but each one must examine his own work and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. So, Again, you need to check yourself first. Make sure that what you are doing, you are doing by conviction. Not just because you are um, naturally wanting to live a life of towards licentiousness, which is where, where I happen to be. I want that freedom. And sometimes I can overstep and I can turn something that isn't a freedom to me into a freedom to me. I can justify and something that has been clearly outlined as sin in scripture, I can uh, twist to my own advantage. I can say, well, I have the freedom of Christ to do that. And it's good if somebody else will gently and humbly say, hey, Tyler, are you, are you sure that that's okay? But uh, again, we need to grant love and grace. Um, how does this phrase sit with you? This is a phrase from the Schofield Reference Bible. It says, the church has no authority to decide questions of personal liberty and things not expressly forbidden by scripture. 
The church has no authority to uh, overstep in things, in questions of personal liberty that are not expressly forbidden by Scripture. Now, as a pastor, I like that because uh, that means I don't have to tell you well, what school to go to or who to date or these different things. There's a recognized gray area, and I'm not to, to overstep that. As somebody who is uh, who tends towards freedom, towards licentiousness, I like that. But if you are one who tends towards legalism, you want somebody to tell you what to do. Just just tell me what movies I can watch. Is PG-13 okay? Is an R-rated movie okay? Uh, what music can I listen to? And you probably are down here walking along this road um, and it's good for us to recognize where are we on the spectrum, what are our tendencies and to be uh, one, checking ourselves first as Galatians says, and two, watching out for our brothers so that they may not stumble um, while keeping an eye on ourselves. and then I think if we're approaching each other in a matter of graciousness, gentleness, and respect, and if we are willing to be approached, then we can navigate this road a little bit more easily with the, the help and assistance of loving brothers and sisters in Christ. Any other thoughts at this point? If it's not sinful or heretical, don't judge. Amen. We need to talk about it. We need to sharpen one another with it, but not judge. Yep. Yeah, so we have a tendency, I think most of us for ourselves have a tendency to um, offer ourselves more, more freedom, right? To offer ourselves more license. And then when we're looking at other people, we tend to be more legalistic with them. Well, this person ought not to do that. Or are they really okay to, to live out their lifestyle in, in this kind of way? We're more licentious with ourselves and more legalistic with others. And I would even venture to say that when it comes to non-explicit simple issues that we can never be too licentious with other people. Um, we ought to offer that, that grace and recognize that the Lord is the one who's going to judge in the end. Yes? It's got me thinking in the realm of marriage and a household. You know, if the husband has a preference yes. that him and his wife do them something a certain way, let's say, let's just use the eating food because that's what we're doing. And then if he prefers his children also not eat that food, you know, where's, where's the balance in that? And um, where does that line end if they're going to be submitting to his authority? If they're going to be submitting to the husband's authority? Yeah, that's a, a different realm. So you end up with different answers because at the end of the day, the, the husband does have authority over the household. Um, and so he'll have the last say. But uh, you can look at 1 Corinthians 7 as an example, which says that the husband's body is not his own, but it's his wife's. And the wife's body is not her own, but it's the husband's. And so there is this... Uh, issue of, of submitting to one another, this area of um, offering grace, and um, but at the end of the day, in, in the household, the husband has the final say. Uh, Joe, and then we'll move on to verse four. If we're gently correcting someone, are we not judging them? Yeah, we need to again check ourselves first, so we're not approaching somebody in a, a manner of judgment. And again, I think it, we can't be too, um, 
too licentious with other people. We just need to check our own hearts first. And if it's not sin, then it's probably best to keep our mouths closed, right? When it gets to the point of someone needing correction, you should judge. Yep. If it's sinful, yeah, step in. If it's not sinful, then take it to the Lord. Because of what verse verse 4 says. Verse 4 says that who are you to judge? This is addressing the, the weak person, the person who says, I'm not going to eat the, the meat. That's who he's addressing in verse 4. Who are you to judge the servant to, of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. He's saying that he is the Lord's servant. The Lord will correct him. Uh, later on in verses uh, 13 14, I think, talks about the final day of judgment and how God will judge those and make all things right. But I don't have any right or position to uh, discipline Dean's children. They're not my kids. If I were to spank his kids, I could be in lots of trouble, right? And rightly so. Um, if, <laughs> uh, or, or his employees at work, right? If I were to go in and boss them around as if I were the, the manager, that wouldn't be okay. And that's what Paul is saying here. They're not your servants. You don't chastise somebody else's servants. They're the servants of the Lord. They're the servants of Christ. And he will make all things right in the end. All right, we are out of time. So, again, this is just one example. This is just uh, Paul talking about our, our liberty, talking about our opinions when it comes to food. Next week, we're going to talk about uh, observing different special days or holidays or whatever. So if you guys can come a little bit early, we'll have a church discipline issue for those who have been observing Christmas. Um, anybody who's been letting their kids dress up for Halloween, um, be ready next week, okay? All right, let's go ahead and pray. God, we do thank you for the freedom that we have in you, the freedom that we have from sin and the bondage of sin, that you have taken the certificate of death that has been written against us and you have nailed it to your cross. We are free in you. God, help us to use that freedom rightly and appropriately to set it aside for the sake of our brothers and sisters when it is right to do so. Help us to walk this, this pathway of righteousness together, that we would live lives that are holy unto you. We would uh, challenge and encourage our brothers and sisters to do so, but without uh, compromising their conscience that we would uh, love one another. We would live and abide by the law of Christ, by this law of love. God, help us to uh, please you in all that we do. Amen.